Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Shoam Nicolette. Shoam Nicolette is the co-founder and CEO of IAC, the Israeli American Council. The IAC is the fastest growing Jewish organization in the United States today. Is that true? That's true. You're also a co-founder of several educational tech ventures. I read in your bio that you have expertise in project-based learning, educational technologies, and online collaboration. I want to ask you more about that later in the show. Like many Israelis, you've served in the Israeli army as a lieutenant in an elite unit. Was it classified? No, not classified, but it was an elite unit. It's still an elite unit. Great. Hopefully we're going to have some stories about that. You have a bachelor's, a master's, and is this right? You're also an alumni of Stanford Graduate School of Business Executive Program? Correct. Very well learned. You got a couple of boards that you sit on, a wife, two kids. I would say you're a pretty active dude. Trying. Trying. Doing my best. Well, welcome, Shoam. Those, those were my words and your words. Tell us a little bit more. Who are you and what do you do? Wow, that's, this is a big question. So the question who I am is, is, is simple. I'm Israeli-American. I grew up in Israel, came to America, and I think that this combination is, uh, is what drives my life in many ways. This uh, split identity on, on one hand. On the other hand, it's really this synergetic identity. So on the one hand, you really feel like you're Israeli and American when you're living outside of Israel. At the same time, you feel the synergy of these two identities coming together to something that is very special, and I'm not alone. Uh, you have it in you and many others. And, and today I'm, um, I'm at the leadership of uh, the IEC, the Israeli-American Council, uh, which I've been involved with, um, I think now 12 years, since uh, its foundation. And and I I like to say that we're in the business of community building. And probably we can speak about it a little bit more later. So twelve years ago you co founded the IEC. Right. It was a, it was an idea that came uh, came along from uh, the consul general at that time in LA. Um, the consul general general to Israel. Yes, yes. And um, the fact was that Israelis who immigrated to um, to America were not organized. We didn't live in communities, and there was a disconnect of Israelis from Israel, from the Jewish community, from being Americans, because there was a notion that we will be back to Israel tomorrow, even if we stayed here for 20 or 30 years. And the idea was how we turn this group of people that live here, we're talking about 600 to 800,000 people, I would turn them into community. What kind of 
opportunities and possibilities will be there if that would be a community and I believe that community is all about opportunities and possibilities. So uh, I want to go a little bit more into the dynamic of what you're talking about, how Israelis become Americans or uh, even if they're not American citizens, how they the typical Israeli citizenship, high school, army, and then there's a then what. Before we do that, let's stick with who you are. Um, you live in Los Angeles. You're actually, we should mention, we're in my backyard right now. You and your family are here for the weekend to, to spend time with me and my family. Uh, you're married. I mentioned that a bit earlier. You have two boys. Talk about your wife and your two boys. So I think that my wife and my two boys, um, even before I had the two boys, were kind of the drive of many things that I do today. It's very easy for uh, for anyone that works in the ICU, any, anyone in community building, to work because if you don't work for something that is external, right? You work at the end of the day for the future of your kids. So I think that that's a, this is a big part of my life. And their identity, their future, is something that I care about. And it's, it's a huge privilege to work in a way that you set up the future for your kids. And yes, they're a big, big part of everything that I do, even, even if they don't know it. So let's bring this dynamic of Israeli-Americans to life, but through your story. You're born in Israel. You grew up right. in Israel. I mentioned you were a lieutenant in the army. Talk about what happens in Israel. Uh, high school kids, next move is not college like here in America. Next move is the army. So in Israel, for the most part, when you turn 15 or 16, you start thinking about your service because it's a mandatory service. At the age of 18, you start to think about what would be the next step, what, what you don't want to do. And the reason you need to think about it is that when you turn around 17, you start having the tests to go to specific units. So like in America, 17, 18, you start taking your SAT to determine right. what college you're going to. So, so we do it both. We both have the APAs, exams, or whatever in, in Israel, because you do think what happens after your service. So you do have the high school experience, Talk but about rather pressure. than looking for the next college, uh, looking for college, you're trying to think because you don't have 100% control you're trying to have some sort of control on where you're going to have your service so some would just let it go you know just let it be some would turn really into serious training because they would like to get into combat units so you have very extensive days where they train you and they're um, examine your uh, 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 you're fit basically to special units and some uh, that are interested in technology units would make some efforts to be there. So what did you do? It's funny because I remember that um, when I was in high school um, I was really good with computers and math etc. So I, I got this, this letter from, uh, from the IDF basically um, telling me that, uh, they should, that they should come to test to go to the special uh, unit dealing with computers, programming, etc. And, and I was 17, and I was really offended. I was really offended by that. Why? Because I was 17. I w I'm not sure that I was that clever at that point. And um, 
because I really wanted to be, you know, to do the real thing. Combat. Combat, yeah. So, um, and, and these units, these technology units are amazing, right? And you hear all these huge companies that are built from people that went through these units. But at that time, really, I feel that the real service, and, and I still, still feel like everyone is important, but at the end of the day, combat uh, soldiers are giving the most. And I was all about how much I can give. Um, that's it. And it's, it's a service at the end of the day, right? You don't do it for yourself. So what kind of, what is the ultimate giving? And for me, it was being in an infantry unit. But you weren't not in infantry? So I ended up um, declining the proposal to go to technology units. Okay. And then I won't get into the detail, but I went through a very interesting uh, path until I got to this uh, paratroopers recon unit. Paratroopers recon unit. Recon unit. It's a special units with, uh, within the paratroopers. So you guys would be dropped off in enemy lines, I'm imagining, in the middle of the night... Yeah, so it's it's um, in Israel the paratroopers. I won't get into too much details about them, but I would say that in general paratroopers are not par- uh, parachuting anymore. The last time paratroopers really par- uh, like really parachuted in a in a war, I think it was in the fifties, nineteen fifties, and there is some parachuting that uh, I shouldn't be speaking about. But in generally speaking, we're we're just like walk a lot. The, the the things we did was was basically to to think how you can surprise the other side. So it it would be trying to think about outside of the box uh, things going to surprise the other side. So you're you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, right? And you're put in. I mean, I'm I'm imagining. You correct me if I'm wrong. You're in enemy territory, right? And you're by yourself basically you've got your unit but you're by and large there's not like a huge army and tanks and stuff around you yes and no so the the way that it works and by the way i had a very interesting service because i got to the paratroopers as a um, artillery support officer and then things changed then but usually when you go on an operation you're not like you're alone and far away but there's a big, um, especially for uh, for special operations, there is a lot going on in the background. You know, in the air, in the there are many things that supposed to support you when something goes wrong, and 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 even when things are not going wrong, you're not supposed to be alone. Although it feels alone. Sometimes. When you say alone, are you with like a, a other soldiers in your yeah. unit, or are you very much alone? No, no, no. You're never. That alone, you're like it's. It used to be forces of around twenty people, I would say. Um, so you would walk somewhere, stay for like three, or four nights, and do whatever you're supposed to do, and come you back. You can't tell us what you did. A story one. I'm trying to think what what. It's not. It's, I don't think it's a big secret, but it would be. It's. It would be. Our job basically was that was the time of South Leb that South Lebanon we still had a buffer there called the security zone. Israel left the security zone in 2000, but in at the time that in, during my service South Lebanon was um, a buffer zone, and we our job was basically to stop 
Hezbollah from attacking Israel. So that buffer zone was, and, and the idea is that instead of uh, Hezbollah dealing with the citizens, they would deal with the military. That was the paradigm. And wait, wait, wait. which citizens? Of Israel. So instead of attacking the border, so you create a buffer zone. I see. And in this buffer zone, um, there were many attacks of both sides on each other. So the Israeli soldiers are creating a buffer zone to right. protect citizens from attacks yeah. from Hezbollah. Right. That was the Got security it. zone. Our job, in our, my unit, was to go further away from the security zone to try to create surprise for terrorists before they came into the okay to the buffer zone fascinating that was, that was so story. how many years were you in service four and a half i think something like that so you're 21 22 years old yeah. you come to the states i was more um almost 24 because um, before i came to the states you're like an old man absolutely 24 no, it's it's actually not funny because i started i, I came here to for school i came here as a student and and yes, you come and that's why I'm saying you're an old man. You're a freshman in college, yeah. and you're 24, not 18. Right, and and think about it's not only age. The age is the easy part, but you're coming t- to spend your time with kids that just they're 18. They're just <laughs> left home. <laughs> they're, it's the first time they're living home, mm-hmm. and it's not that you're 24 and you're older, but you're 24. And again, I'm. I don't think that I'm. I'm that special in that matters, but you're 24 after having some experiences that no one else would have in terms of responsibility, of events you're going through, of of uh, um, almost, I would say, forced maturity to levels that people might not even get their entire life, and you're 24. So I think that that time um, you feel even older than 24. Does it make sense? Absolutely. Okay. And this is this is what I wanted to pick at and get to really what is the dynamic of an Israeli when they come to America. You're not right out of, you're not, you know, f- this is your first experience out of the home, the equivalent of like you described, an 18-year-old going to college for the first time. You've already experienced life in ways that many people never experience in their entire life. So the maturity, absolutely, it makes sense. So here you are in America. You're 24 years old, and you're just starting school. You get your bachelor's. You go on to get your master's. At what point did you get involved with co-founding the IAC? So two things about Israelis coming here. I think that, one... Most Israelis are not immigrating to the U.S. or anywhere else, in their mind, and and it, and it's a pattern. I'm, again, I'm not special in that. I came here because I got a scholarship, so I said I'd come here for one year, try it out, and I just, after one year, I said it makes sense to finish my bachelor's, and then it just made sense to finish my master's, and it was just made sense to gets just job opportunity to come back with Israel on something on my CV and and then it just made sense to stay a little bit more to come back to Israel with some savings and it wasn't planned and the reason that what I just said is important is because if you feel that you're temporary here why do you need 
a community. Why do you need to take care of the future? You're here temporarily. You're here for yourself mm-hmm. and then and building yourself as a... As a it's like you said. You're here to get your degree right. for yourself. You're here to get some job experience and go for back. yourself and go back. And go you're back. You're here to save some money and go back. Right. You don't think about the future. Yeah. And, and even if Israelis, even if Israelis that come here later on in relocation, again, they're coming here in their mind for a short time. And this is the biggest paradigm that is, is, is counter to community building. This is one. Second, I feel that Israelis that come here, and it happened to me, immediately become ambassadors. In their, uh, ambassadors for what? For Israel. So back in Israel, you debate like crazy. Most Israelis are very, very involved with politics. Anyone is involved with politics. Um, I think that much more than any other place in the world. Really, every Israeli has their own opinion. It's, it's, it's not binary. It's like endless opinions. <laughs> Everyone could be the best prime ministers. And they're debating and they're complaining about everything. And they, they could run Israel in a much better way than any prime minister or any minister. But in the minute, and th- they love to debate and, and, and so forth. As soon as they're leaving Israel, for the most part, many of them would like say, okay, Israel is, is just awesome and how we tell the story of Israel. I think that that's what happened to me. I came here for school and as soon as I landed in 2000 here in, in America, after two months, I, th- I remember that. And again, I, I didn't come here on, like I came here as a student. I remember myself dedicating myself to tell Israel's story. And why? There is no why. There is a, there is well, what it just happened. It? I think it's just happened. I think it's just you feel such a strong connection to the country, such an important part of your identity, especially if you served in the IDF. You feel like this is this is this is your baby, and 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 you just feel like I think it's it was complete intuition. It wasn't like it, it was completely came from the heart and from the stomach it wasn't planned to be this way but but i know that um for me from the day i landed in um, in america really things changed and i be telling the story of israel was a big deal for me so let's kind of shift here for a second because the show is called takeaways and it's about the takeaways that i've learned from people who have influenced me and i'd like to ask you like i've asked others before what is the single most influential thing or event in your life that shaped you the most? It's such a tough question because we really like, you know, there is this famous, famous uh, uh, speech, commencement speech by uh, Steve Jobs at Stanford. And he talks about connecting the dots. And I can literally think about Ten pivotal moments where big things happen in my life that turn to be dramatic in where I am right now. And by the way, most of them at that time looked very negative, and and somehow they turned into a very posi- positive way. Today it looked like they're they're still negative events, but. When I look at it today, I'm very happy where I'm right now. So, and definitely these negative moments made it possible for me to be 
where I am right now. So it's very difficult for me to say to point one event that that's there are a couple of them. Maybe we're going to touch them. Well, let's touch one. Listen, just the decision to come to America was a big decision. Um, I would say that one of the one of the things that definitely I carry with myself and, and I'm I'm trying to be very careful because I don't think that it, it is the the one defining moments. It's it's one of several defining moments. And there are some positive and some negative because for example I can tell you that and the moment I looked at the ultrasound and saw Eitan before he was born was definitely something that that day I made several key decisions about my life. Okay, so th that's a moment I remember. But if I need to go back to one of the events um, that definitely had and still have influence on my life is, is was mil my military service and was... Um, at the point of one of these special operations where we were supposed to surprise the other side in what we call behind enemy uh, enemy lines and we got surprised uh, and and this is where I lost also my commander and two other of my friends officers and in an operation that just basically got messed up that definitely had many different influences throughout my life and I still carry it with, my s with me. And, and I think that I took it for too many positive uh, implications and, and I took it to a positive, uh, still trying to create something positive out of it. So go, go back for a second because I want to understand what you just said. You were in an operation, your early 20s, I'm imagining, something that you, you in your mind, you're going in you know, like you said, you're going to surprise them, but you guys got surprised, and the the loss was a catastrophic loss. You lost your commander and two other friends of yours? Yes. So, yeah, so it's, um, you know, everything, and, and when we talk about it, it sounds heroic and sounds very, like, uh, intentional, but the truth is that when you're, uh, I think I was 20 back then, you don't really know what you're doing. I can tell you right now, like, if you look at now, in retrospect and when I meet with my friends from the unit we didn't know what we were doing we were really young and when you're young you don't you you're it all looks like natural to you right it looks natural to do this crazy stuff natural like you don't know anything different no you like you're you're you, the the element of fear is almost not there so it looks natural to walk mm. in some crazy areas and um and and to wear uniform and 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 uh, to hold a weapon and just to to do it, um, I would be much more scared today to do it. So yeah, so it was it was a night that is was pretty much as as quiet as the night we are the surrounding here, and it was much colder here in Vegas. It's really hot, but that was February in in North in South Lebanon. It was really cold. There was snow actually still on, on the ground and and again we were working for something that was supposed to be i don't know it felt very uh, very natural because it's in an area that we we're already there so you can imagine silence everything is very very quiet we're getting ready for like in a spot that wasn't wasn't that important at the operation and i could still see 
the back of the team that was going to a certain uh, spot on on the hill. It was like a very stony hill with with bushes and stuff like that. So they're going, and then I remember myself walking to the skies. It was bright skies with stars, really like you know being completely calm, and and then hell starts with bursts of of uh, of uh, fire and and so there's you said there's about 20 of you yes in a unit and you're in, in the back in because team. you could see everybody else in front of you no so you have a group of 24 that was the exact number and you walk together but then we're splitting into four teams and each team has its own function in general we had snipers we had people that hear helicopters it's related to the story man it's unbelievable like you're, you're doing so like we're sitting in, we're <laughs> sitting in my backyard you may have you may hear it in the audio there was a helicopter i thought it was an airplane there was a helicopter <laughs> and he just shined his light into our into my backyard apparently they're looking for somebody in the neighborhood <laughs> So this is what That's this like is. This is good. the end of the story because the end of the story is with helicopters. All with right, well, keep stay where you are. So there's there's so there is four there teams is, of six. There is four teams. I don't remember how many in each team. But okay. And uh, there are different functions in each team, and each team had its own operation. It was supposed to be three nights. We were like kind of heavy. We were having big, big, big uh, backpacks. It's also winter, so. You have lots of uh, warm clothing with you, and this these four teams basically at that point it was the first. So the, my commander, I was in the team with my commander. I was in in that team was in second in command after my commander and that six people or seven. I don't remember how many we had in this this specific team. But my commander actually went to pu- put another team that was like the team that was supposed to vi- to give us cover. So that was the back position, mm-hmm. okay? And then the plan that for us was to go further, closer to a village where we knew the terrorists are coming from and to do whatever we planned to do. So this part of the operation seemed less dangerous than the rest of the operation. So basically most of the, f- the, the force was where I, w- I stayed and my commander went to put only one team there in um, at that position and in the exact same position there were two or three tourists i don't think they knew that we're going to be there but at that point i think they knew that we're coming and they were shooting basically and killing both my commander and um and one of the engineering officer and we had two of them in this operation and um, and then everything else happened how did you get out of there? With Blackhawks. So you but mentioned earlier, so if something goes wrong, this was the, yeah, the if, time. If something, something went wrong. If, if something goes wrong, yeah. so... And a, and again, it's it's also the other side is not alone, right? It's not only through three. Suddenly, yeah, there is they artillery. There is artillery. F- no, they're not. They're kind of ran away. Oh. They do, the last thing they want to swarm to the end. They're like run away, but then you have artillery falling in you and other stuff. So... So for us, it was uh, we had artillery, we had uh, helicopters, we had uh, it was pretty far. 
What do you mean by far? Pretty far from the Israeli border. So, for example, for the helicopter to decide to come, the Blackhawk to come to take us, that was a risky decision for them. Not uh, only that, okay. is that after the first time, they, the, the first thing they did is they picked the bodies and the injured. Because we had also five people injured, seriously. So, then they went back to Israel, to the hospitals. And then they didn't basically, the decision was that they don't send the Blackhawks back in. It didn't make sense because there was artillery and everyone knew that we were there. And and we be, we already, whoever stayed, we were back, like I think we were only 10 people or something like that. We were supposed to go back by foot. That was scary already, by the way. That was what? S- this is when it started to be scary. After the battle, this is because you think, okay, now I need to go back uh, by foot when everyone knows that I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not secret anymore. It's not. Uh, but then the pilot decided to pick us, so he got in, and so he did that. What against? Not against, his but command? yes, but it, it's not really against. But it was. Uh, it's at the end of the day, it's their decision, but it was against the recommendation. Let's put it this way. So that does sound pretty scary. I mean, it was already yeah. a, a a horrific event, and then you have to figure out how to get yourself out of there. And then there was a heroic. It sounds like there was a heroic soldier that decided to come back. The pilot. Yeah, there are many, many, yeah. many, many heroic stories around this operation. So during you, and after. Before you started the story, you you mentioned how you had some events. This was one of them, and that you used it in a positive way in your life. Right. So let's shift to that. How how was this experience something that was positive for you? Hey, I think that. It I got a sense of uh, responsibility because I said, okay, if my commander and and my friends were willing to sacrifice their lives for something bigger than themselves, I have a responsibility to A, tell their story, and B, to carry this notion that it's not about ourselves. It's about giving. It's not about receiving. And then the minute that you think about life this way, it's even if you don't feel if you don't understand it at that point like I can think now about many decisions I made that at the end of the day were about things that were not necessarily at that point about myself does it make sense and also I think that the the for me many of the things I did back then since I got to the Americas was about telling their story and telling their story was also mean it means that I created a student organization on campus, and I had this this tradition in LA of of, of new um, memorial ceremonies for Americans, not only Israelis, that I started year after year. In, at the IC later, the Eitanim program is called after my commander Eitan. That's it. So I think it's you carry a simple decision whether because it's it's not an easy situation to be in after after this kind of person. So you, you really think what you do with it. Do you make the best out of it? Or, you know. Or do you become a victim? Yeah. And it sounds like this activated you more, not just to be an ambassador for Israel, but to be an ambassador for one, like you said, to tell their story. Yeah. But then also to find a whole different meaning with, with your approach to life. What you said about, it's not about receiving, it's about giving. Right. So let's go back to the IAC. Yes. 
you co-founded the IAC. My guess is that if you ask the several co-founders, there's probably five versions of this story of how it was co-founded. There are so, 10. 10 versions of the story. Let's just stick with your version because you're the one that's here telling the story. I can just say one thing, and I don't mind. I don't care if people would argue about it. But the one thing that makes the IAC special until today, that the IAC couldn't exist and couldn't be successful by one person. Okay, so there is, and as someone that was there from the very, very beginning of forming the idea of the ISC, I can tell you there are so many people critical for the success of the ISC at every point, both in planning and ideas and, and vision and in execution. And it's really, it's important to remember that because I think that this is, huge successes are not, I know that we always, think about its leaders and the big names but it's never one person i believe and certainly not that case certainly in, in the ic case there are many people involved and many people that were crucial in their leadership in their uh, giving to make it successful before we go back to the origin story tell us really quickly as it stands today the iac the israel america council what is it and how big is it? So today the IAC is an organization that brings Israel and the spirit of what we call Israeliness to the center of a nationwide community. We are operating through 20 offices. We're going to have 22 offices this year in more than 100 campuses in more than 70 communities across the United States. 22 offices. 22 offices. We have 20 where, offices. We're where? going to have 22 coast to coast. And these offices are not operating on one community, but several communities. So, for example, the New York office has four or five communities okay. that they're um, responsible for. So, when you say office, it could be the L.A. office, the Las Vegas office, the Phoenix office, Correct. the New York office, the, the Boston office. Okay. When you say 100 campuses, you're talking about universities? Yes. Okay. Universities and colleges. And 70 communities? More than 70 communities. And what is it that you guys do? I would say the three main things that we do is one, is making sure that we connect the young generation of Israeli and Jewish Americans today, okay. but really connecting them to their Jewish identity and to Israel and what we call this, the Israeli spirit, for that matters. I'll ask you later in about a bit to describe Israeliness specifically, yeah. but, but, that, but that's stick with where we are. central to what we do. This is the secret sauce. This is what makes the IAC different than anything else. The second part is connection to Israel in general. And the third part is really fighting anti-Semitism and, uh, and everything else that is going on in America today. That relates to the to our community, but we believe that it's not only our community. So, so these are the three big things with, that we do, and and then when you go and describe what it means, it has programs, it has. So that was my next question: is what are one or two examples of how do you do that? How do you connect the, so the next generation? How do you connect to Israel, and how do you fight? Okay, so um, anti-Semitism. So what makes Again, the IC, especially in terms of when we talk about the young generation and families in general, is that we have what we call multi-touch. So multi-touch ecosystem. Sounds exotic. 
Yeah, so multi-touch means that <laughs> if you think about, I just told that to someone that is, has more experience than I do, like is uh, 30 years in the business. It was it was an, an executive of several Jewish federations running a foundation right now. And he mentioned one of the big philanthropists in the Jewish world that is a huge entrepreneur who said that if you would treat the cli- his clients as, as the Jewish world, you couldn't have a business. Why? Because let's say that you have an amazing program. And it's true, by the way, not only to the Jewish world. It's true to many, so many other things we do. Imagine that you have an amazing program for teenagers. What happens at the end of this program? And it's amazing. At the end of the program, you basically lose your customers, right? Because these teenagers become college students. So you lose many on the way. And then you have in college, let's say, let's assume you have an amazing program in college, but there is no continuity. And what we created is continuity. So we touch every age. The day you're born, basically, you're part of this ecosystem. And the programs that we have are interconnected and basically create, create this ecosystem of what we call the community. So multi-touch. Multi-touch let me, means let me that walk through family, the steps. So I've got, family, I've got three kids. Exactly. They're eight, five, and three. Right. How are you touching them? What's so, an example? So eight, five, and three are still in the same group of and in, in Vegas, we have one of the most uh, successful programs for that age. We call it Keshet. It's a nationwide program, but in, here in Vegas, it's it's one of the strongest chapters. And what uh, does Keshet mean? Keshet is rainbow, but it's an acronym for a community, language, and a culture. Okay. And so, then uh, so kids when they're my becoming age, teenagers, uh, they're, they're going to be... Wait, hold on. Before, before we go to teenagers. Kids my age are involved in a program called Keshet, and it connects them to community, language, and culture. Culture. Of Judaism, Hebrew, and the religion. Well, Judaism, Israel, Judaism, yeah, and Hebrew. the language is the Hebrew, but Hebrew okay. is much more than... It's not the language of Israel, right? Hebrew is much more than that. It's how the Old Testament, the, the Bible, the Old Testament is written. The Hebrew is part of our identity as Jews, right, for 3,000 years. Um, culture, the Israeli culture, culture is much more than. It's again, it, it's a very. We look at it as part of the DNA of Israeli Americans. Okay, now go to high school. What do they do in high school? In high school, high school students, and actually now it's also middle school students. It's what we, what we call the Italian, and we connect them to Israel and Jewish identity through innovation and entrepreneurship. So let's just peel back the Eitanim thing for a second. Your commander that you lost, his name is Eit- was Eitan. Right. You established this program. Did you invent Eitanim? Did you conceive of it? Or was it with others? So, as I said, ev- everything is, is done through many programs. But this, this specific program, the reason that I was a little bit more involved in writing the, the basically writing the first version and coming up with the name is because of my background in project-based learning. I grew up with project-based learning. It changed my life. Going back to the question, what changed my life? This was a significant part of my life. Most of the leadership skills that I got, most of my management skills that I got, most of the soft skills that I had, the passion for technology came from being a teenager in a very similar program in my middle school and then high school. So Etanim 
it's a very specific case where I was really involved in making this program uh, from the vision to reality. So you've established a program. It's really supplemental to any high school education, right. any other programs right. where high school kids could participate in this and they are learning in a project-based way. So what's an example of what, let's say, the last class of Eitanim, what did they do? So project-based learning, it's not it's not one task. You get, you can get several tasks. You can get a task for three hours. That could be a simulation. And it could be something that goes through three sessions. Or when we have a hackathon over the summer, it's it could be five days. So And what happens in a hackathon over five days? So just before that, we need to understand that the today teenagers are not the teenagers that we used to be. It's not that I'm saying that we're old or something like that, but it's it's not the millennials anymore. Um, it's Generation Z. So the attention span is even shorter. Communication is different, right? It's it's the social media generation. It's the iPhone generation. Instant gratification. It's you even call it iGen, okay? I generation because of the iPhone. So and and they're also much more pragmatic. So. They would like their hobby in general to be their profession one day. It's much more about themselves, but at the same time, they feel much more isolated. So they're very focused about their future, and at the same time, they feel much more, much more lonely. Does that make sense? Yep. So understanding that, we understand that in the learning process, you have to have the student in the driver's seat. Just like when you're learning how to drive, Right, the teacher wasn't sitting under by the wheel and telling you, you know, this is how you do it, and you would sit in the passenger seat, mm. learning. You were sitting in the driver's seat, and he was there to help you and to guide you and step by step. But you are there, you're leading the, the the learning process. So this is number one, very critical, making sure that the kids feel that they're driving the process. Second is making sure that we teach them how to learn. It's learning how to learn. Because when we grew up, it was about how much knowledge we have, right? What can I memorize for the test? What you can memorize and what, what materials will be significant for your future. What do you need to learn to be a better adult? Today, there is no way in the rate that information is growing and things change and professions change that you can teach any kid. So the best way to prepare a kid today is, is to not to teach to him a profession, it's to teach him how to learn. How to learn and the skills. So the skills would be how to take an idea, how to plan a product, how to present a product, how to work in a team, how to analyze. And this is what the Atonims are doing. That's exactly what Atonim is doing. So going back to the hackathon, think about this challenge of teaching teenagers about the Holocaust. That sounds heavy, right? Mm-hmm. So the reaction of most of the Jewish community about that was just to say that we don't deal with it. It's too heavy, right? It's not fun. It's not. And being a teenager today is about fun. And it's about joy. And it's about, you know, anyhow, it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a generation with lots of depression. So let's not depress them more. What we did is, is we called them for five days. They didn't know the topic, by the way. They didn't know why they're coming from. 
like they know the subject matter. They knew they were coming for five days, 170 kids from across the nation, plus kids from Israel. And they came for five days. We split them into 10 teams. Each team was a startup. Uh, they're a CEO, CTO, CMO, and so forth. We had mentors. What is a CTO? What is a CMO? These are all titles for executives in real life. Project-based learning has to be real life-based. Well, CEO, I know CEO. that. CTO is chief technology officer, C- uh, CMO, chief marketing officer, even CFO, chief financial officer, because everything that they did it had to be realistic. And then they had a competition for four days to come up with products for their generation that would capture the memory of the Holocaust. So the first thing they so did... So how, how can they not learn about it if they have to go inside and out of the subject to, right. to create a product? But Brilliant. But now they're... And they're in the driver's seat, the like driver's you said, seat which is have, important to they're them. They're in competition. And they're presenting in it in a way where it's meaningful and relevant for them. Right. And in four and their days... their age group. And they're in four days, there, there is a purpose to it, right? And there are mentors coming from Silicon Valley, from other places that are real executives with these real positions and real titles to teach them how it works in real life. And this is a reverse multi-touch where you're giving someone like me, for example, that if I I want to give back, I can connect to the Eitanim and the Hackathon. Okay? Exactly right. I'm with it. And the mentors are there not to teach, but to give advice, to connect them to real life. How you pitch an idea, how you build a business plan, how you present the idea. So imagine these 170 kids coming for a summer program, and the first thing they did was meeting with Holocaust survivors. And then four days later, presenting ideas of how artificial intelligence can help to preserve the memory of the Holocaust. Gives me chills. So that's, that's the power of this program, and you can do magics with it. All right, let's stick with the multi-touch. That's the high school age. What happens in college? How do you touch them? In college, I would take the conversation to a different place, to failures, if you don't mind. Absolutely. And I'm really proud of our failures in the organization. And it's never failures. It's, it's things that were not successful enough. And I, and I feel that many times people are so in love in what they do that they're not willing to say that if it's not growing, it's failing. And I'm very proud of uh, the IC of all the failures or all the, the, the points where we said, okay, so we're going with a direction that is not scalable. It's not going to, the, to, to make a real impact. It's cool. So, m- for example, with Michelano, that used to be a social club where Israeli-Americans could come and eat pizza and speak Hebrew. Michelano translates to what? Michelano is from us. From us. So that was the program. Basically a social club for the hybrids, people like you, born in the United States, coming to campus, you are connected to AEPI, but many are not connected to anything. Everything that looks Jewish is too Jewish mm-hmm. and too American. Um, the Israelis that are coming on campus are too Israeli. And then you stuck with this hybrid identity where you don't feel American, you don't feel Israeli. You know, the only thing I could reference that, I didn't really feel that, which is interesting. But I can reference that, too, is like uh, pop stars that talked about their identity and, and feeling, uh, you know, they're biracial. They, they felt guilty identifying one way or the other or not totally comfortable one way or the other. So that's the best analogy that, that just came to my mind on what you described. 
because we're we are talking yes. about ultimately identity. Right. Two things that happen is campuses changed since you went to college. True. They became not that sympathetic for Israeli Americans in many ways and for Jewish Americans. So that's one. And second, I think you're special in many ways because you're oh, very... Show on. No, Thank you. I think that at the end of the day, you want, when you go to campus for the first time, you leave home and you feel again this loneliness and you feel this isolation in huge campus. You're trying to look for people that are just like you. And mm-hmm. this is the majority of the people. It's true that leaders go out there and try to be part of something bigger and transform themselves and change. But reality, that that was the demand. There were like Israeli Americans coming to campus and looking for ways to connect. So going back to the where I felt that it's not strong enough, we decided to change strategy and having this social club move into a leadership program. Michelano, for several years, were stuck with several hundreds, almost thousand students that we're touching over a year. And we didn't see significant growth. And, we s- and then we went back to our strategy. We have, for the organization, we won't get into it, but we have seven elements of strategy that this is like what I set for everything that we do. And one of them, the first one, is force multipliers. Is the notion that to build a community and to be successful, you cannot do it as an organization. You have to work with the community. And you have to build community leadership. Otherwise, you'll always be limited with your bandwidth, right? Does mm-hmm. it make sense? Yep. So you always be limited by your resources. So if I this want is, to create... This is like leveraging or compounding in a way. Yeah. Leveraging is... I agree with you, but I, I don't like to use the word leverage when it comes because to people. Because I know, because force multiplier sounds right. so much better. No, for... Yeah, because it's people. <laughs> and it's leaders. And, and uh, yes. And leverage sounds like you're looking at them as resource, and we don't. And so the idea of force multipliers is that, so if we take Michelano, that let's, let's call it 1,000 students, we decided to pick leaders on campuses. And we picked leaders, and we started to invest more in few, fewer students. So we had 80 in the first year. Sounds, does, it sounds does, like a contrarian approach. Right. You talked about shutting it down because it's not scalable, right. and now you're going to the few. Right. Within two years, mm-hmm. because we worked through false multipliers, two to three, it's two and a half years, we're now touched almost 3,000 students. Next year, it's going to be 35 or 3,600, and we're going to see exponential growth because now we're we're not depending on our team members, but... It's more and more students that are taking the leadership role. And I'm sure that the impact is much greater Mm -hmm. when students speak to students and it's not paid staff people speaking. So So Keshet for the kids, Eitanim for the high school kids, Michelanu for college, young professionals I'm sure you have. Edge, yeah. Edge. What's the next demographic above Edge? Above Edge, we're already looking at programs that are touching we're looking at already leaders okay only the force multipliers so you won't have programs that are just for the sake of having a program for the target audience but rather 
focusing on force multipliers that create many other opportunities. Uh, so that's one. So we have, for example, Gvanim, it's shades, okay, where we basically train leaders. We had 230 graduates this past year across the nation where we train community leaders. We give them the tools to be leaders. We teach them what is a community, what is the Jewish American community, what is an identity of immigrants, and so forth. And and then there is a bunch of programs around that, and then there is the activism program, where we are activating our community lately. The, the biggest story we had is in California uh, this past two months. What happened there? So we found out that basically there is in California there was a, the actually the, the bill that was supposed to be there was just delayed for a year but the, there is there was a decision in 2016 I think to have ethnic studies we won't get into the origins of what what ethnic studies means but there was a committee advisor advi- an advisory committee that um, built a curriculum for this ethnic studies in public schools in California, when reading this curriculum, or the, the, the best, you could find there pretty much an radical anti-Israeli content and some anti-Semitic narrative. Now, so that hold on that for a second. So this is the state of California's yes. public school curriculum for right. ethnic studies. Right. So before. The curriculum was accepted. It's, it, they put it on a website, and they said, okay, now the public can respond to it before it was August 15. We'll receive this, this whatever they, were, they gave us, like, mm-hmm. this form where you can send a complaint or send a review, and we'll review that stuff, and, and they just put it online. And there are several organizations that were looking at it and being negotiating it. it we're not the first ones to, to look at it. And and actually, there this was like going around for five months, I think, before we knew about it. And there was there were there were negotiations around it. I don't, I don't want to get into what it included, but in the minute that we learned about it, our approach was we're going to bring it to the community. I think it's one of the most exciting things that I've seen at the IAC for twelve years, is how the Israeli American community and then also the Jewish American community around the ISC activity came together sending more than 20,000 letters to the Board of Education, to the governor, bombarding the Facebook page of the Board of Education and the Education Department in California after three hours, basically, they shut it down, uh, sending emails, phone calls, Think about the fact that there were discussions around it for five months, five and a half months, and from the time we learned about it, I think it took 10 days until the Board of Education already decided two days before the deadline that the review was supposed to start, two days before the deadline. They already came to the public and said, we're going to basically eliminate this, uh, this curriculum. So I want to I want to use This is the power of the many. This is the power of community. And this is the point of community building. And building yes. into building into yes, leaders. This is the difference between a community and an organization. So say more about that. At the end of the day, the purpose of a community is to give you, as individual, the power to control your future, to have more control control about your future. 
and your kids' future. Community is, is, is not social gathering. Community is a powerful platform that really help you to fulfill the possibilities and opportunities that you have in your life. That's how I view community. It is really, in, in my opinion, it's one of the most powerful tools that people can have. And how is an organization different? An organization is, is led by professionals, is always limited by its resources. It always has to have checks and balances of many stakeholders. If we take this example, you're limited. There is so much you can do as an organization, right? There is regulations and there is, there is so much you can do. And, and the power of the IC is that we have a community behind us. And also, okay, so I can go there and say, okay, our community, right? Many organizations say, our community say, or this is going to be hurtful for the community. And we could sit here, two people, five people around the table. And it's something else when I said that our community and there are thousands and thousands of people raising their voice. So now when I speak on behalf of the community, it's a huge voice. And I can tell you also in terms of what our community did, for example, research. They went and researched who was the, the advisory committee that built this curriculum and find out that there are six people there that were publicly radical on Israel issues. And again, I won't get into the details of then what is the organization power of doing with this kind of... Mm. Because you do need this combination of organization and community. That's, that's the power of the IC, right? And, and then finally, you find out in the last two weeks that it's not only that the curriculum is going to be changing, but also this entire committee is going to be... Wow. They took it apart. Yeah. So let's, let's go back a second, and then I want to segue into the takeaways portion of this where I, I want to explore some of the takeaways that I've learned from you over the years. So this notion that you have state of California, public school curriculum and ethnic studies comes out, and it's for five months going around and around and around. The IAC gets involved, and in 10 days shuts it down and puts in question the people that even put it forward to begin with. Is this an example of Israeliness? Yes. It's one example. Because, first of all, Israeliness, it's very important to say. It's not better than anything else. Okay? It's different. I always say to many Israelis that they feel that they're better is that we need to remember that, for example, when we talk about America as a country, I don't think there is anything close to it in the history of humankind. And when you talk about Jewish America with all its problems, with all its challenges right now, with all these the many articles we read about declining, etc. It is the most exciting story about Jewish diaspora in the history of the Jewish people in the last 3,000 years. And we're new and we have this, this energy, but again, we still, we have to learn a lot. So that's, that's before I talk about Israeliness. But at the end of the day, Israeliness is unaffiliated, it's unaffiliated with any political party. It's unaffiliated with any uh, religious affiliation, with any baggages. As I said before, every Israeli has their own opinion. It's decentralized. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what we see in many parts of Jewish America. Okay, So Israelis don't like this. They don't like to be identified by anyone. You know, you won't see Israelis talking about being reform or being Democrat or being Republican or being conservative or being, they're just being, okay? 
So this is one part of the Israelis, is the, this unaffiliation. And by the way, this is the reason where we have many Jewish Americans now joining the ISC because of this unaffiliation. This is one. Second part of the Israeliness is really thinking out of the box, not accepting the paradigms, uh, challenging everything that you see as a fact, challenging everything that you, s like every system. That's another part of Israeliness. Israeliness is, of course, the culture, is the language, is the heritage. Israeliness is the entrepreneurship, it's the innovation, it's activism, and it's the very strong connection to Israel, and the love for Israel that is beyond any politics. So let's strip away some of these things. Let's say let's kind of describe Israeliness to someone who might be listening that is not Israeli and is not Jewish. What are the attributes of Israeliness that anybody can wrap their arms around and apply in their life. There is a great book called Startup Nation. I'm sure you read it, right? So it's, it's again, it's this concept of, of not accepting anything that exists as something that has to exist this way. Even the things that you, you're believing that there are no paradigms. So it's always changing, always innovating, always thinking about what you can fix, how you can think out of the box, how you can innovate. You see many Americans that have this, this spirit. And this is why they feel connected to the IC in an easier way. So just, just on that, let me just put an emphasis on this. this. When you describe that, I'm thinking about Steve Jobs and how he, people described him or he described has the ability to alter reality. Because he wouldn't accept that you can't tell me that you can't design a plastic phone with curve, you know, beautiful curves. I don't believe it. I don't care what you say about physics. You have to do it and find a way. Right. So I think that's that challenging the, 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 the paradigm yeah. and yeah. not accepting, you know, fact for fact, so yeah. to speak. So I think you would enjoy the IC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But st stick with some of the other attributes of Israeliness. At the end of the day, you do have this road word Israel in it. Now, Israel, just to, to remind you, it's not only for Israelis, right? Jewish Americans feel connected to Israel. Non-Jewish Americans feel uh, connected to Israel. People go to Israel and they feel this warmth, this feel this sense of family, feel this sense of belonging, sense of, of a community. And this is why they fall in love with Israel. If you go to Israel, let's be honest, there is, there are, Israel is beautiful. I love Israel. But you can find in America also amazing places with nature and so forth. What makes Israel special is not the nature and it's not the cities, it's the people. And the sense of a family, I think that especially now, where the biggest epidemic in the United States is uh, and in the Western world is isolation and loneliness. Like this is what, why the ice is so sticky. And why Israeliness is so sticky. The fact that you meet Israeli, you, you know, we were just going to Yosemite. And again, maybe it's not only for Israelis. I don't know. You will tell me. I'll tell you the scenario and you will tell me if it's Israeli or not. So we're going to Yosemite and maybe it shouldn't, it, sh it shouldn't be in the podcast, but still. <laughs> so we're going to Yosemite with, with my friends from, uh, from Israel and we, for we forget the diapers for Ilan. 
So two things happen. One, like two Israelis comes to us and ask for water, and then Tallinn needs diapers now. We're in the middle of like the the trail. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is to hear Hebrew and immediately go to someone and just, I don't know, there is this connection of being feeling like you're a part of a tribe. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It happened to me in Thailand. Right. You said you were going to say the scenario and ask so we went to, Danielle and I went to Thailand for our honeymoon. We're flying from, I think it was Chiang Mai back to Bangkok. I'm in the bathroom. I didn't say a word, Shoam. I said nothing. The guy next to me, washing his hands, I'm washing my hands. He looks at me and he goes, Yeah. It's Which a, is, you, I could just see on your face that you're Israeli. Yeah. And you can, and you can go to travel somewhere. And you have someone that you know from your military service and you were not in touch for 20 years and you would call him and say, okay, I'm here. Can I stay over for the night? I think it's it's unique. I don't think that it happens in other areas. And I think this is the Israeliness. This is the sense of, again, and, and, and it's not that everything is lovely and fluffy and everything is really love to fight and debate on... But at the end of the day, it feels like being part of a tribe. And I think that this attribute is the reason for the fast growing for the, the fast growth for the IC. The other thing I'll add about Israeliness, my observation of it, and one of the things that I'm attracted to about this word and this, this sort of sentiment, it's about doing. I mean, you, there, yes. you hint around about it when you talked about, you know, challenging paradigms and not accepting yes. fact. But it's, it's one step further to say, you know, fact isn't fact. I don't accept it. And I will have it done in five days and you'll see how beautiful it is. Or not. This, or not. Or yeah. not. You're right. Yeah. Or not. Absolutely. And in the Bible, there is a, there is a phrase, Naseve Nishma. First we do and then we listen. And, and today in the world, like the real world today, it's called the Lean Startup or Lean Development, right? But instead of just sitting there and planning and talking in communities and committees and, mm. and so forth, you go there, you do it, yep. and you find out it works, it doesn't work. And it's definitely, I see it's definitely Israeliness, yeah. So a cu- couple more takeaways. One of my favorites that I've learned from you over the years you know, we've had conversations before. I share something with you. You know, what are you up to? This, that, or the other. And with a little click and three words, you totally challenge my thought process. You know, so you know, we'll be talking and I'm sharing with you something that I'm up to or an idea that I have. And you say, it's not big enough. Right. So before I could take any credit to it, I must say that about the IEC specifically, that we're not thinking big about the IEC. And the only reason that we're starting to think big was because of one guy named Sheldon Edelson. Okay, because when Sheldon came to the IEC in 2013 and he started to speak about 20 chapters and having it nationwide and having it betwi- beyond the Israeli community, we didn't know what the guy was talking about. We said, okay, he's giving us lots of money. Let's, let's move forward and see what happens. We'll do and we'll listen. We'll do and we'll listen. So so really when I talk about thinking big, so I need to take myself into really in, in perspective because 
I'm still not in the you know most of us are not in the capacity of really um of 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 the thoughts of really like the this the way that children thinks about things and his vision now is reality and this growth that he projected is 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 happening and and so forth so first of all I have to give credit for did he for him and Miriam but did him and Miriam instill that in you as far as yeah, thinking abs- big absolutely I think that I think you that weren't like that before. I think that I always was thinking big, but after you meet Sheldon, everything looks so small, and then y- you look at everything that he did. Everything s- looks small. So yes, I think that definitely it forced me to think bigger. And then some of the experiences that you mentioned in in my bio, etc. It's it's an ongoing methodology, and right now I think that. I always think about everything that I do as a small thing, even about the IC everything I want to say is exciting about being fast growing and it's big and it you know in every objective measurement it's it's a significant organization it's a big organization, but I always think that it's too small. I think the potential is much bigger, and I think that everything that we do in life we should think in a bigger way, especially. In the 21st century, I think that bigger is easier. That's why I tell my team now that if you try to create small things, it's much tougher than thinking big and having a bigger vision. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Bigger vision will always attract more people, will always attract more believers, will always attract more support, will always be exciting for you. You need to be careful with that because some people say this is too big. It happens to me lately where you know I'm talking with board members, etc. They say, okay, you're talking, <laughs> you're going too far. But I think that, yes, thinking big is easier, I think. It's more exciting. I agree. And I don't think that it's a patent that you have or a patent that Sheldon Adelson has. I think that this is something that's Absolutely. available to everybody. Absolutely. And not just with things like the IAC, Everything. with anything. Hey, we're going to dinner with me and a couple buddies to ask the question, you know, what's the point of dinner? It's to be with my buddies and to connect with them. In the normal thought process, you pick a nice restaurant and that's as big as it gets for the night. But you can always ask the question, what would make it even better? So let's say we go to that restaurant, what would make it even better? You know what would be even better is if the chef came out and talked to us and gave us a private tour of the kitchen. That's cool. What would make it even better than that? It'd be really cool if there was, I don't know, a celebrity that came and joined us for dinner. And on and on and on. You keep asking and asking and asking. Some of it is preposterous, but some of the stuff you can actually do pretty easily. That's a I small agree. example of thinking yeah, big. I agree. But let's take it to another place where what kind of impact you can make as a person, as an individual, not only in community, but also impact that is social impact, it's business impact. And I think that the power of individuals today to make huge impact is much greater just because of technology, just look at this podcast, right? It's we, You don't know when this podcast is going to become something that hundreds of thousands of people would be interested in, right? Now, because you're on it. Maybe. <laughs> but technology allows us to think much bigger and to have much greater access to people. And this is why I think individuals shouldn't think about anything with any limitations. Make sense? Yeah, yeah but I want an example. You, were t- you started talking about impact and the, the, the ability of an individual to make an impact. It's easy, right? It's, uh, I don't need to, to, to 
go to my life. You, you see it everywhere, right? You see it in the Me Too movement and you see it in the all kind of startups that started in garages and back in the days couldn't be a reality. You see all the podcasts and all the YouTubes and all these this influencers, what we call but right d- now. But the don't you think it's for like the, the normal Joe or Jane, it's easy for them to look at even all the things you just talked about and say, yeah, but that's them. They're special snowflakes. I'm not. Yeah, maybe back in the days. But today you look at the influencers and were the influencers. I think that it's even more exciting because influencers today are really taking their personal talent. So think about all the gamers. Do you know about the ni- this guy, the ninja guy? Did no. You know about him? So I don't know when it started. Everything started around 2000s, like in the last 10 years. But there, there was a startup called Twitch. Did you hear about it? No. Basically, this, this notion that people love to watch live other people playing video games. That I've heard of. Okay. That became a huge success. I think that Twitch was... I think Microsoft acquired them, something like that, or Amazon. So s- think about these people that love playing games, right? You learn about them in economies, right? They're always being portrayed as a very negative thing about people that are bummers or mm-hmm. lazy, mm-hmm. staying at home, playing video games instead of working. Suddenly, they're celebrities. Suddenly, they're making money. Suddenly, they're making an impact. Suddenly, thousands of people are watching them and listening to what they say and how they say it. Think about all these YouTube influencers and celebs where you can take your music and you can take your... You can publish your book without book publisher. So it's not only that you have the power to make more impact, even if you're nobody, quote-unquote, you can also make an impact in what you're good at and what your what your passion is and i think this is what's so exciting it's a great this, point this at this time so sticking with impact a few several weeks ago we were also together similar on a night like this except we were in newport we we're in the backyard and you shared with me the process that you take yourself through routinely to ensure that you're still making the kind of impact that you want to make and not just the current impact but the next level of impact what is that process? I always talk about creating value. What kind of value I create, what kind of value my organization create. And I think that it's it comes to, at the end of the day, to some very simple questions that I ask myself almost every other week. And sometimes I even write it. And I was teaching it to also my team, etc. You know, think about yourself now in your position. What happens if someone replaces you what would be the 10 things they would do first when they come into your position to prove that they create more value than you do what would be the 10 things that they would do so you ask yourself that's what i ask i'm saying okay tomorrow there's a new ceo for the ic what would be the first the 10 first things this this ceo would do to show i'm better than shoam these are the things i did and right. this I cut expense. I cut expenses here. I, I created this new program. I changed that, and I do this with myself. And then, again, trying to reinvent myself, time and time again. That's not the only question you asked, though. You shared a couple, yeah, a couple more with the me. The basic, the biggest question, which is, what happens if your organization would die tomorrow? 
could miss it really? Why it would matter to anyone if the organization is not there? What parts of your organization or your company someone else would take? What else would be left for nobody? The things that are will be left for nobody, it's either that you don't create important value or this is your unique value proposition. So the other, the other thing is, is perception, okay? So you're trying to take three steps back and to look at everything that is front window of your business or your organization. That could be your Facebook page, your web, your web page, your anything that you do, okay? And this isn't, you, uh, this isn't the results. This is no, something you, different. This is the perception, this is the perception. of the business you're or the just, organization you or your take, job. Right. So you just take your phone now and you open your Facebook, but you don't look at it as owning the Facebook page or the web page or whatever you do or your marketing materials, but you're trying to look at it as someone from the outside that doesn't know your business, that is not from the organization, mm -hmm. that is not, for the first time they look at it. What would be the perception about what you do? And why is perception important compared perception to like results? Perception is everything because perception, especially, actually there is always perception matters, right? Perception is your brand, why brand matters, right? Brands creates the notion of what kind of value you create, the authenticity of what you create, the trust that you have in the product. The perception of the product is also, it matters to me, right? If I belong to the IC as someone from the community, what it, does it tell about me, right? Is it it's great to be called someone that is related to the IC? Is it mm -hmm. great, like it's just like you pick your car. It's not about the mechanics of the car, right? All the cars today, with no exceptions, in 2019 are great cars. It's not like 20 or 30 years back. All the cars are great cars. All the cars will take you from A to B. It's all about perception. And what does my car say about me? That's what, that's what you're, you're getting at. When I pick right. a Lexus over BMW, so look, right. what does that say about me? Right, but you're trying to look at it at, mm -hmm. at, because at the end of the day, it's, it's pragmatic, right? The process is not theory. It's, not, it's pragmatic. It's how you take all the questions I ask. It's not just to sit in theory and think about things. It all comes to tasks. So it always translates into five to 10 tasks where the things I need to change. So if the perception of the organizations is A and I don't like it, what is the gap that I need to fulfill right now? What are the tasks to, fu to fulfill these gaps? Does this make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think it's powerful how you ended that. It's not, you're not just doing this exercise for the sake of the exercise. Right. You're doing it to I like how you described it, to establish a gap. Where am I now? What's my new desired state? How do I fill the gap in between? Exactly. So just to sit there and say, okay, another CEO would come, and well, this is nonsense. This is a waste of time. But saying, okay, these are the things that are most important right now to deal with. The reason you need to stop and ask this question, because we all get into, I don't know if all, but many of us get into this pattern of doing what we do, most of us are really busy in what we do, and we don't have time to stop and think. And even when we stop and think, we think in the same paradigms that we created for ourselves. Even, what, even if we feel that we think outside of the box, it's still our box. So to try to stop and really get out of the box, getting, getting into what we call the balcony, or getting into really zoom out of your, uh, of your situation, 
looking at the gaps and then translating these gaps into tasks i think that's that's very powerful that's the, this is learning organization this is learning company right you always measure you always look at the impact you always look at things every day as a new thing it's also risky by the way how's it risky it's risky because you cannot wake up every morning and change things especially in an organization because then you drive the organization crazy and yourself crazy so you do need to have strategy you have to measure it or to test it every year or two years but you have to stick to your game so you do need to have points that are always constant okay factors that you're you're creating for yourself a set of rules and you act by these rules so if force multipliers is a rule every new idea has to fall into this rule it's like a core value for a company yes everything you do falls into the core value so I, I also want to when you were talking I had a thought about this process that you take yourself through it's not just for organizations not just for a profession this could also be a useful tool in a marriage for example to ask yourself not if I if my wife has a new husband but you know what are the 10 things that I could be doing that I'm not doing right now to add value in my marriage or in my family unit right Someone, someone just asked me last week, and again, it's, uh, it's not new. Not, nothing that we say here is new, but it's, they asked me about you know, work-life balance, which is not one of my strengths. And I said, listen, I really have to be successful in what I do. I have to I have responsibility for this organization. I really want in to be successful in everything that I do. This is what I said. And this person was wiser than me i guess said what about being successful in being a dad and being a husband if you want to be successful in everything that you do what about these elements what about taking everything that you're preaching about in running an organization and bringing it to your personal life isn't that being also being excellent in everything that you do it's a good question yeah absolutely so we talked a lot about a lot. I'm curious as a parting thought or a parting uh, discussion here, what is most on your mind these days? It's always what's next. Always. It's never settled. It's ever, never like what in every aspect. It's, you know, it's, it's two things. Can I have two? Absolutely. It's what's next and balance <laughs> and balance. Because I think that in a certain point, this the ability to create balances, it's becoming a condition to have the what's next. That's deep. It makes a lot of sense, but it's really deep. But but this is this is a, these are the two things that right now. Because really, to take things to to next level, next level. And we spoke about many things here, and thinking big. Mm -hmm. The foundations needs to be wider and stronger and much more resilient and this is where you have to create more balances and th that's the part that makes us most sense as you described you know what's next and next level and next level you're either going to do that exercise and lead yourself to burnout right or if you can say what's next take it to the next level land the plane in balance ask again what's next take it to the next level land in balance and so on and so on that's really how you get there without burnout Right. 
Shawam, this has been really insightful, exciting. I learned more about you than I knew before we sat down. Thank you for doing Thank this. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I had fun. So I got a lot of takeaways there. Hopefully you all got a lot of takeaways. Thank you for tuning in. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.